As Rob shared a minute ago, it may be light and it may be easy, but there is a cost to following Christ, as Bob will share, and as I'll read today. I had the pleasure of listening in the first service, and as Bob shared a few weeks ago about another message, if you aren't challenged and encouraged after today's message, then you won't have been listening. So I'm thankful for Bob and all he brings to, to this church. From the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple, and whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, This person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. When he first sit down and consider whether he's able to, with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000, if he's not able, he'll send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and ask, and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good. But what if it loses its saltiness? How can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we're in the big, very beginning of a series. Uh, a series entitled Crossroads Following Jesus to the Cross. This series will walk us through the Gospels, mostly in John, but on this occasion a different Gospel, Luke and others. That's a pathway to the cross with Jesus, because all of these passages will be passages that are anticipating the cross, namely his crucifixion. In this particular passage, that was especially true. There was a large group of people following Jesus, a large group. This was a peak in his ministry. And Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and he throws down the gauntlet. He says some things that are difficult to hear. Here's what he begins with. He says, I want you to understand the requirement of being a disciple. What's the requirement of being a disciple? He says, you got to hate everything you once loved and follow me, or love me more than the things that you once loved. He puts it this way, if you're going to follow me, you got to hate your mother and your brother and your sister and your father and everybody else you loved in order to follow me. Really? One of the struggles that interpreters go through, and, and it's, it's a legitimate struggle, is to try to determine on any number of occasions what portions of Scripture are to be taken literally and what portions of Scripture are to be taken in other ways. Remember last week Jesus said when he was speaking to a crowd, he used, he used what John called a figure of speech. On this occasion, Jesus is using what is often called a hyperbole, which is an exaggerated series of words for the purpose of making a very important spiritual message. That doesn't mean we shouldn't take it seriously. It just 
means we shouldn't take it literally. Why should we not take it literally? I mean in literal 21st century language. Because if we did, it would contradict a whole lot of other things that Jesus said. Right? Because Jesus said, I want you to love people as you love yourself. Furthermore, Jesus went on to say on one occasion, I don't want you just to love your family and your friends. Everybody can do that. I want you to love your enemies. So Jesus surely isn't saying, I want you to literally hate your father and your mother. I want you to do whatever you can to show them your hatred. He must mean something else. What is it that Jesus means? He basically means this. In order to love me, there are occasions where you have to reject something you love or defer to a greater love. Most of us don't understand the gravity of following Jesus the way some of the people in the first century did or some people in other cultures. Because to follow Jesus in some cultures literally means you turn your back on family or they turn their back on you. Routinely, in some cultures, if you declare yourself to be a Christ follower, your family will pronounce you dead. Not literally, they won't kill you. But metaphorically, you're dead, you might as well be in the grave because you're following that man and you can't be with us. I've known some people even though the situation wasn't that severe, who have made a choice not to follow Jesus because they know that to make the choice to follow Jesus is going to, in some measure, alienate them from their families. Because some members of your family might not understand And Jesus said, if you're going to be my disciple, you have to make decisions. And sometimes there's consequences like you have to reject things or other people reject you. But I think Jesus was saying more than you have to make hard decisions that are going to be costly to you in terms of your relationships and the way that people affect you and interact with you. I think he was saying something else here as well. He was saying, in effect, I want you to choose me which is the highest order of love available to a human being. That is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and to love your neighbor as yourself. Isn't it interesting that those two things were linked together? And I believe the reason they are linked together is because God calls us to a rightly ordered set of loves. That is to say, he says, I want you to love me first and foremost because when you love me above all else, first and foremost, everything that is underneath me, and everything is, will be loved better by you. So, I think my wife is really encouraged to know that when Jesus calls me to follow him, he's not suggesting that I have to literally hate her. What she actually knows is this. As I follow Jesus unconditionally, as I place him in a rightly ordered love hierarchy, I love her better. I love her more. 
Because when I follow God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, I begin to realize the deep truth of God, which is that every single human being is stamped with the image of God. And so Jesus treats every single human being as an image of the Creator Himself. So if you love me deeply and understand my teachings deeply, you will love others better. There, there's a, a poet who puts it this way, um, not trying to be religious at all, but sometimes I'll use it in marriage counseling or in weddings. And the phrase is basically this in summary. Dear, I could not love you most, loved I not honor more. What's that supposed to mean? <laughs> it basically means this. If that didn't, person didn't love honor... Let's substitute another virtue. If that person didn't love absolute selflessly, if that person did not embrace the virtue of humility, if that person did not embrace the virtue of complete loyalty, then that person could not love that one so much. If he did not love honor, virtue, more. You see, here's the thing. If we do not honor virtue, if we do not love the Lord our God with all our hearts and the teachings of Jesus Christ, if we do not love that first and foremost, then our affections, the objects of our affections become nothing more than self-love. We love them for ourselves and ourselves alone. But when we love in a rightly ordered way, and when we love God more than anything else, we love everything that God has created better than we could on our own. So Jesus says, I want you to understand the requirement. You've got to love me first. The second part of the requirement is hideous. Okay, I'll just say it, horrific. He says to them, the other requirement, don't just love me first. Take up your cross and follow me. Now, I got to wonder what went through their minds. Okay, this is before Calvary. This is before the resurrection. This is before the understanding of the whole story. So here's what we know they heard. What we know they heard is that Jesus just said, following me is like the most hideous death you can imagine. Following me is like being put up on a cross, nailed to a cross, and being the object of scorn for the whole society, being labeled a criminal. Following me means to bleed and die and suffocate from lack of air and be deplenished by lack of water and food slowly, painfully, until you're dead. That's what they heard. That's all they could have heard. Because that's what crucifixion meant. I just wonder what hit their stomach in that moment. We don't have the answer. But man, that sounds pretty harsh. We have a, a remarkable ability for hearing things the way we want to hear them. And maybe, just maybe what they heard is this. If I'm going to follow this man... And he's the Messiah. And he's going to conquer Rome. 
I've got to be an enemy of the state such that I would be willing to die on a cross. Maybe that's what they heard. What they didn't hear was what the disciples now understand in retrospect. What they didn't hear, I'm sure, and couldn't have understood at least fully, is that to follow Jesus and to take up your cross was not to fight for conquest, but it may mean dying as a martyr. Taking up your cross, according to Jesus, was not conflict with the authorities because they were the bad guys and the evil ones. But it was literally a fight with sin and Satan and self. The flesh and the devil. Taking up your cross means taking up the weight of the reality of all this world around you and walking with Jesus and taking up the weight of the sin nature inside you. No, not really. Jesus takes that weight. But to deal with it and realize that from your inside out, you're routinely drawn away by the siren voices of the world. Take up your cross and follow me. Some of you have probably read Pilgrim's Progress. For those of you who haven't, basically Pilgrim's Progress is about a man who's coming from here and going to there. He's in this world and he's leaving and going to the celestial city. And all along the way there are all these distractions. Distractions because the enemy of his soul wants to get him off track. And Christian, this disciple, says, I will not be diverted, at least completely. I'll stay on the, tr on the crossroads. <laughs> I'll just take up the cross and keep following him. I think that's what Jesus means. He says, I want you to understand the requirements. It really means you've got to reject some things and love me first off. It actually means you have to take up your cross, so to speak, and follow me. And you know what he was doing with all these requirements? He was weeding people out. Because there were people who were following him because it was a trend. Because it was a fad. Is there anybody who understands trends and fad better than us in the United States in the 21st century? They're everywhere. People are getting on the bandwagon with a new one all the time. Jesus might have been the bandwagon for those people. And Jesus says, I can't take the bandwagon fans here. If you want to follow me, I want you to know what it means. It may also be that um, they were camp followers. You know, in ancient um, battles and civilizations that included war, which all did, you had huge groups of people marching towards a particular destination, and they would camp along the way. Some things don't change. What happened back then, routinely, even in the Civil War, if you take a look at the uh, memoirs on the Civil War, there would be camp followers. They weren't real soldiers. They were just hanging out just following way behind the lines, almost pretending like they were a part of the brigade, but not committed, just watching, camp followers. Maybe they just wanted to see what happened. Maybe they wanted to see the victory, and then they would run in and act like they were a part of it. Jesus says, I want to tell you what the requirements are. Don't be a camp follower. There may be people who were following Jesus because they absolutely believed he was going to conquer Rome. Think good 
Friday, or excuse me, think Palm Sunday, the coronation of Jesus into the city. There were people following for that reason. Whatever reason, Jesus weeds out and eliminates those who are not truly committed with his language. So the first thing he says is, I want you to understand the requirement. The second thing he says is, I want you to consider the cost. I want you to consider the cost. I used to, uh, in one of my many lives in the past, I, I used to uh, be a commission salesman for Sears, Roebuck, and Company. That's what they called it back then. The retail giant that used to be. And Sears uh, would sell some great things, and I sold sporting goods for them for commission, and I sold uh, craftsman tools for commission too. And I really liked selling the tools, because that's a good product. If you don't know, a craftsman tool is a quality piece of equipment, and it's got a lifetime guarantee, a ridiculous lifetime guarantee. As a matter of fact, I remember my father one time, he was a big fan of craftsman tools, and uh, he found a large socket wrench in the sand in South Florida pitted, worn out, and literally frozen up by rust. It didn't work anymore. And he said, I think I'm going to try this out. So he picked up the socket wrench and took his journey down to Sears, and he said, here's a socket wrench. It's lifetime warranty, right? He said, sure is, sir. He said, well, it doesn't work anymore. And the man said, well, let's get you another one. He said, wait, i got to tell you something. I never bought it. He said, that doesn't matter. It's a lifetime warranty. Here's the new one. They gave him one. Maybe that's why Sears is in such a mess nowadays. I don't know. <laughs> but we loved it, right? Here's the thing. When I sold tools for Sears or sold products that were sporting goods products, it wasn't my job to help the customer count the cost. I didn't say, you know what, you better check your, your balance sheet before you do this. Is this in your budget? Have you talked to your wife? <laughs> I didn't ask any of those questions. I was just there to sell the product. Point being, that's not Jesus here. You're not selling a product. He's actually telling people who are listening to him. If you want to follow me, if you want this product called the kingdom of God, you better count the cost. And here's the illustration he gives, two of them. He says, you know, you wouldn't start building a house if you didn't have the money to complete it because if you did, you'd be laughed at by all the observers, right? You've seen those houses, right? There's always one somewhere where somebody starts a house and can't complete it and just sits there and there's rust on the side of it. There's a real famous one. Actually, now it's been reconstructed and completed in Versailles, Kentucky. Now, in France, they call it Versailles, but different rules in Kentucky. It's Versailles. And a lot of other rules in Kentucky. Um, I was born there. Um, in, in Versailles, Kentucky, if you're on your way to Lexington or in, and you're going into Asbury, which is where my son went to school, you'll pass this thing. It's a gigantic mansion. It's really more like a castle up on a hill. Huge. It's got this magnificent driveway going up to it. And you look at it and you think, that's just like medieval. That is so cool. You know what it was? They call it Martin's Castle. Because a man named Martin around 1968, came back from Europe with his wife and was enamored by architecture in Europe, particularly castles in Germany. So they decided to construct this edifice for themselves. Only problem was they couldn't seem to get along and they divorced one another and the project went bust. And it sat there for years. 
Somebody's finally taken it over and turned it into something, but it's kind of like this story. Count the cost. Not, not the money that time, because I think he had enough money. The vision. The unity of two people. Count the cost. When I do weddings, I frequently uh, will begin the wedding. Well, actually, always. I begin the wedding with a rather traditional statement. And part of that statement uh, says this. This way of life, entering into this covenant of marriage, this way of life must not be entered into carelessly or from selfish motives, but responsibly and prayerfully. What do those words mean? Count the cost. As a matter of fact, the old versions of this say, in the fear of God. You realize what you're about to do? You're about to give your life away. Everything that was once yours is hers. All your loves that were once yours are his. You're giving it away. Count the cost. That's what Jesus is saying. If you want to follow me, count the cost. And he uses the illustration of a king who basically understands, we think, that he's going to be overcome by a larger army, so he, he negotiates a peace for his people. He counts the cost. So Jesus says, I want you to do two things. I want you to understand the requirement. It's really high. I want you to count the cost. And third, I want you to reflect on the results. And here's how he says that. He says, basically, there's such a thing as salt. You know about salt. Salt is useless if it's not salty. If the salt you have loses its saltiness, what good is it? Now, some of you who are into chemistry may be saying to yourself, well, that's not possible. Sodium chloride can't actually lose its saltiness, right? Um, I'm not a chemist, and my limited research has told me that that's true. Sodium chloride doesn't lose its saltiness, so what in the world is he talking about? Well, he could be making some sort of extreme statement that is almost like a foolish statement for a point. But it's more likely he was making a statement about salt that was harvested from the Dead Sea, which was a very salty part of the world because all the rivers flowed into it. It had no point of egress, so salt formed on the Dead Sea. And they would harvest this salt, so-called. But the salt itself was not pure salt. It had other things in it. And when the salt was taken out of the salt, so to speak, what remained was gypsum and other impurities. And it looked like salt. I suppose it could be sold as salt if somebody didn't know. But it wasn't salty. It was really, as for the purpose of salt, worthless. Jesus says, if you follow me, so-called, and you're not committed to this thing. You're like unsalty salt. You're worthless. Don't do it. There's a way in which he's actually saying, I don't want you to go into this half-heartedly. If you're going to go into half-heartedly, just don't go at all. I don't want you to lose your saltiness. It's an indictment to you and to the gospel. Salt was incredibly important. 
It actually was part of the fertilization process in the ancient culture. It was used to inhibit weeds in, in things that is called manure here, basically a place of compost. It inhibited weeds in that place and also slowed down the fermentation process to allow the compost to be better. It was incredibly important. And Jesus said, I want you to be true salt. So understand the requirement. Consider the cost. Then reflect on the results. Are you salt or are you not? By the way, at the very end of this, he, he throws out a little phrase that's just fascinating. He says, those who have ears, listen. What does he mean by that? Those who are wise, don't rush ahead. Stop and reflect on what I said. Take it seriously. So can we do that for just a couple of minutes? There could be a lot of things, right? This is, this is the part of the sermon that I enjoy and hate the most. I enjoy it because after studying it, I've come to conclusions that I feel a conviction about. And after studying it, I realize there's all kinds of other conclusions that ought to be made. But that's up to you in the spirit. So here's three things. First conclusion. What you see here in Jesus' words, it's not your father's evangelism. Now what I mean by that is not God the Father. I mean, it's not the evangelism we were taught by our fathers. Now I know it's going to ruffle some feathers, okay? But that's okay. Hear me out. Hear me carefully. Most of us consider evangelism in its various ways to be a communication concerning this general theme. And I'm not calling anybody out, okay? Any particular form of evangelism. Evangelism to us has come to mean something like God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. How could you resist that? Come to Jesus. Okay, please hear me. I believe that. I believe it to the bottom of my heart. But Jesus was the gospel. And when he's on his way to the cross, he's proclaiming the gospel. And part of the gospel is you better recognize the requirements. You better count the cost. This is not easy. Do you want to follow me? Some of you may dispute that that should be a part of evangelism at all. We could talk about that. But call me jealous or grumpy. You don't have to look far to find gigantic churches. Thousands and sometimes tens of thousands that attract people from all over the place who my friends never preach this part of the gospel. It's true.
It's not fun to communicate this part of the gospel. Do you think Jesus was laughing and clicking his heels while he said it? I'm sure he wasn't. But it's part of the good news. To follow Jesus is a life-altering, absolutely life-changing, difficult thing. If you're going to be my disciple. Um... I don't know what else to say about that. Except to say we got to make sure the gospel is completely communicated. The second point uh, of conclusion is this. I want to make a, a distinction between a follower of Jesus and a follower of Christ. They say, oh, here you go, playing with the words again. I know, I know. Here's what I mean by the words, okay? A Jesus follower could be someone who follows Jesus because they kind of like some of his teachings. They could be like a camp follower. They could look at Jesus and say, man, that is just an awesome, I am going to adopt that one, that principle of Jesus, but that one over there, not so good. I think I'll edit that one out. That's what I'm calling a Jesus follower. Okay, let me play on words a little. You know what I mean. You know, you might not be so bold, but you could do, be a Thomas Jefferson kind of Christian. You know what our amazing president did? He took the New Testament and cut out sections of it that he didn't like, primarily things related to miracles and stuff like that. Edited it and said, this is the way I see the gospel of Jesus. I'm going to follow this part. Shoot, you wouldn't even need scissors nowadays, right? Just go to BibleGateway.com. You could fix up your own Bible. Just edit it out. Or you could live your life that way and just be a follower of Jesus. Or you could be a Christ follower. Again, I'm playing on words I know. But you know what Christ means. It means Messiah of God. There's all kinds of Jesuses. Common name. But when the disciples and Jesus himself attached the word Messiah to his name, it meant something different. It it meant that this one who's walking with you, who's fully human, is also fully God. And he didn't invite you to follow him like a poet or a philosopher. He said, I want you to follow me like I'm God. Like I deserve your overwhelming obedience and affection. That's what I'm asking for from you. That's what it means to be, with my play on words, a Christ follower. It doesn't mean to be perfect, okay? Don't guilt yourself into that corner. That's not what I'm saying. You're looking at one of the most imperfect Christians that you've ever met. Right here. That's not what it means. To be a Christ follower means you're absolutely, unconditionally committed to following Jesus Christ, even if it means your death. That's what a Christ follower means. And you're committed to obeying him. Not just taking what you like. So I guess the question is, which one are we, right? Are we a follower of Jesus or a Christ follower? 
Final thing I want to say, and um, I'll make it quick. There's a positive, unspoken assumption in Jesus' last phrases. Because he talks about salt, right? And in other places he talks about salt and light. And he says, I want you to be the salt of the earth and light of the world. So actually his phrase, without going there in this little group of sayings or sermons, his phrase inclines us to another thing. It inclines us to remember that we are the salt of the earth. And that is absolutely glorious and wonderful and a privilege that we couldn't adopt on our own. It's been given to us as a privilege of grace. You're the salt of the earth, says Jesus. And what does salt do? Well, you know, it preserves. In the ancient world, Greeks had a, a statement about salt. And it went like this. Salt could put a new soul into dead things. It can like bring the life out of stuff. It preserved the meat for long journeys. It did all kinds of things. It was a preservative. An antiseptic, too. We are, if we follow Jesus, an antiseptic for our world. I didn't say somebody who's shouting and condemning and yelling and pointing to themselves as righteous. I said a quiet antiseptic for the world. Just living as a Christ follower creates an atmosphere that heals. Right where you are, right where you live. Salt's also a flavoring. It brings everything to life. We know that. That's the one thing we certainly retain from the ancients. We know what salt does to food. It brings life out of food. And for that reason, if we use this metaphor, Christians ought not to be grumpy, angry, dour, rude, negative, killjoys. There's some sense in which Christians ought to be the life of the world. Can I say it this way? The life of the party. We ought to be so delighted with Jesus Christ that our presence in any context brings joy. Unbelievable joy. Salt's also a fertilizer. Referred to that already. And a fertilizer just makes things grow better. Just improves the soil. We live in soil. And the metaphor here is that salt, according to the ancients and how they used it, actually allowed the soil to produce crops better. It was a fertilizer. And correlatively, it also made weeds shrivel up, dry, and die. So as Christians, we ought to be that. We ought to be people who, with our very presence, are fertilizing the soil of life. And with our very presence, treat the soil in such a way that evil just shrivels up and dies. Because the presence of Christ is with us. And you say, that's a really high standard. I know it is. You say, I can't be that kind of salt. I know you can't. But here's what I also know. And you know. There are certain people in whose presence 
you find courage. It's because of them. There are certain people in whose presence that you see beauty. It's because of them. There are certain people in whose presence you just want to be righteous. More like Jesus. That's being the salt of the earth. I know some really specific people in my many years of following Christ who have been that for me. And I could name them. But instead of naming an individual, I want to tell you this. You. You. The body of Christ. You make me want to be righteous and to follow Jesus. Thank you. Do for others what you've done for me. Be the salt of the earth. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that you invited us on this journey. Of course, it's not easy. It wouldn't be worth it if it was. Of course, we can't do it, but we would understand grace if we could. The story, Lord, that's wonderful is that in spite of ourselves, you gave us the grace to say yes, and you give us the continuous grace to follow. So we pray, Lord, that our saltiness won't go away, that we'll recommit ourselves to being the salt of the earth, that you will enable us to be such, that you will give us your overwhelming grace and peace, that you'll, when we're absolutely exhausted, as that song said, you'll, you'll, you'll hold us close to your chest. give us what we need to carry on. You're a good God. Um, you raise the bar really, really high and it needs to be there. And then you infuse us with grace that helps us to do more than get over the bar. It helps us to be Jesus Christ to our world. And we thank you for that grace. Please help us to follow. In your name we pray. Amen.